The following is a message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. The shoot is the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and follow along as I read. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will, will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Thank you, Bob. Isaiah 11 is our text, but we'll need to delve just briefly into Isaiah 10 to really make sense of Isaiah 11. What's, what's happening in Isaiah 11 is a response, as it were, to Isaiah 10. What's happening in Isaiah 10 is the nation of Israel, the ten tribes at this point in, this, in the divided kingdom, are being prophetically warned of what's going to happen with the Assyrians coming to overrun them. The, um, the kingdom is divided after the reign of Solomon, at which Solomon's reign was at its apex. And now um, Israel, Israel's first uh, king, Jeroboam's first, one of his first acts as king was to begin idol worship by putting golden calf in Bethel and Dan in order that the people would not go back to Jerusalem. And so from that point on, Israel has always had wicked kings. And now God's wrath has reached its limit and he is ready to put them into exile. And the Assyrians are going to be his tool for that. The dividing of the kingdom, as it were, would be the first, um, first chop at the tree. The, 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 the motif here is trees, and I was thinking about it. I didn't put this in here because I didn't think about it until this morning as I was preaching this down at St. James, but 
the scriptures, the whole, uh, the, the whole of, of mankind, as it were, with Adam and Eve in the garden, begins with two trees, doesn't it? Tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And because Adam and Eve won't obey and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and because God will not leave them in the garden with the tree of life, they are banished and removed. And if you go all the way back to Revelation, you'll see trees come up again. Trees are throughout. Oaks of righteousness and um, the, the, the mustard tree that grows large is the kingdom of God. And Paul writes about Israel as an olive tree. It's all over. And, and so here this, uh, this um, analogy is being used or this type is being used, this illustration of a tree that's being cut down. And the first strong axe uh, cut came when the kingdom was divided. The next strong one is coming here at this time when the Assyrians are going to overrun Israel and remove them. And then the next is going to be um, at the, um, when the Babylonians come and take over Judah, the two kingdoms in the south that remain. At that point, it's just going to be a stump. The entire tree is done with. But it's not the end, and already at the end of chapter 10, some hope begins to come. Look at what happens here in uh, verses 25 through 27 of chapter 10. God gives this promise to his people. In a little while, my fury will come to an end. So his anger with them, as his people, is going to come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. That is the Assyrians or Babylonians or whoever the enemy of, of, of God's people is at that point. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. My wife asked me this morning, what does that mean, broken because of the fat? And my Bible has a little footnote, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. And most of the uh, commentators will agree. There's some theories out there, but it's kind of uncertain. So we'll just leave it at it's an idiom that they used that meant something to them related to being freed from some kind of yoke. God's people are fearful right now, at the end of chapter 10 here, that they're going to be utterly destroyed, made extinct. The Assyrians are just going to wipe them out. And at this dark moment, when all that is left is a stump, God gives them a word of hope. I have about a dozen acres of property across from my house, a hill that we own. It's full of trees, and it is... Um, it has my worst enemy, the grapevine. Oh, I hate those things. Climb up my trees, and then they destroy my trees. And I'm, I, my wife will tell you, I'll go through there. I'm chopping, I'm chopping, I'm chopping. I'm just getting every. And I see the little ones coming up. I snag them out, and I do so with a vengeance. And you know what? I come back the next year, and I say to myself, I just chopped that one down. And what, what's happened? Yeah, there's a little green shoot popping out of the thing. Uh, and on my meaner days, I wait a little time before I take it out. <laughs> but here's the picture. 
Israel has been cut, God's people have been cut all the way down. All that's left is a stump. There's nothing. But God's promise to them is going to remain true. Remember what he told them. One of the big promises he told them was that there would always be a man from the line of Judah on the throne. It doesn't look that way right now. It's a stump. Right before the coming of Jesus, it doesn't look that way at all, does it? Herod's not from the line of Judah. Herod's not even an Israelite. What's happened here? It's gotten dark. But a shoot is going to come. And so Isaiah reminds us of the promise when he says that this shoot is from the stump of Jesse. Note, he doesn't say the stump of Israel. He's very specific. Because Jesse is who? Who's Jesse? Father of David. The promise to Judah's line that through that line the Messiah would come is going to come true. And it's going to come true this way. When all other hope is gone, when Israel is cut down as low as it possibly can, has no true king, it has no land, it has nothing, it's an exile, a shoot is going to come out from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from its roots is going to bear fruit. Remember the reading out of Matthew when John the Baptist says the axe is already laid to the roots and the trees that won't bear good fruit, they're getting thrown into the fire. But this tree is going to bear fruit and it's going to be a good fruit. And so the fulfillment that Isaiah is giving us is of the prophecy two chapters earlier in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's this Prince of Peace that is the shoot from the stump of Jesse that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these first two verses, Isaiah is going to describe this Prince of Peace. He first of all tells us that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this Prince of Peace. Now, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord came and went, came and went. He would come upon people to do mighty deeds. Probably the best known is Samson, right? He comes upon Samson, and Samson with the jawbone of a donkey kills a thousand men and, and does all kinds of other stuff. But the Spirit doesn't stay on Samson. For one thing, it comes and goes, and then it kind of leaves him semi-permanently when Samson gets his hair cut, which was a sign of his being set apart for God's work. The Spirit would come and go. But the idea behind this text is that the Spirit is going to rest upon, sort of lie down upon, not get back up, not leave. Permanency is what you've got to think here. When did that happen? For the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when the Spirit came upon Jesus? What was, what was it? We just read about it oh, just before it happened. What? Baptism, right? So what we read about in Matthew there came right before that. John the baptizer is baptizing all people, all these kind of people and stuff, and warning them. And he's saying, there's someone coming who's greater than me. And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus says, you need to baptize me. 
John Carl said, I, I need you to baptize me. John, Jesus says, no, we need to do this. I need to identify with my people, and so you need to baptize me. And when he comes up out of the water, the spirit in the, in the form of a dove rests upon him. And the skies open, and a voice says, this is my beloved son. And so the spirit rests upon this prince of peace. It is, he is there permanently to empower this Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, to fulfill three ministries. The ministry of prophet, of king, and of priest. And that's what um, Isaiah is going to give us here. First of all, the ministry of prophet is described in wisdom and understanding. He will reveal the Father and the Father's plan. And that's exactly what Jesus says that he does. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he goes on further to say, I don't ever say anything of my own, but I'm only telling you what the Father tells me. He is the true and faithful prophet. And we need such a prophet. We need Christ to teach us the will of God because we are ignorant by nature. Oddly enough, when Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than increase in knowledge, they decreased. Their ability to understand God became less. A veil was put over their eyes that only Jesus can remove. And then he's a king. The spirit of counsel and might is upon him. Counsel and might describes his ministry as king. Counsel here is not, by the way, not just advice. The idea is not just, hey, I got some good advice for you. Why don't you, you know, why don't you uh, buy this piece of property or bet on this horse or, I mean, uh, um, uh, just counsel. Like, just don't, just do this. Here's something to do. The idea behind counsel here is that I am going to um, put into place a plan that's going to get worked out. Again, it's not just advice like we might give one another. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Now, many of us plan things, don't we? We're always planning stuff. But the difference with this king is that not only does he plan this out, but then he has the ability and the might to accomplish it. When, when Jesus puts in motion a plan, then he brings it to fruition. It doesn't get changed. It doesn't get messed up by outside forces. We might have great plans, but there are external things over which we have no control that often thwart our plans. That does not happen with Jesus. He counsels, and he is mighty in that. And we need Jesus to rule over us and the world and the devil because we are weak and helpless. We can't do it. We might set ourselves uh, this next year some good goals. These are the things I want to do. But only Jesus can really make those things happen. They're not things that we're going to be able to make happen on our own, for we are weak and helpless. And the third is priest, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The idea here of knowledge is uh, knowing God in an obedient way. Knowing God in an obedient way, being so close to him that I understand who he is, what he desires, and I obey it. In fact, I I love to obey it. 
Fear uh, here is not so much being afraid, but the idea of reverence and piety. So I know, the, I know God's will, and I obey it in a reverent way. This is what Jesus does as priest, and, and we need him to do it because without his, Christ, uh, without his death and resurrection and continuous intercession, we'd be in big trouble because we're all guilty of breaking God's law. And so we need a priest. We need him to intercede for us. So let's take great encouragement from this description of the Prince of Peace. Because the Spirit of Jehovah is on him, he perfectly fulfills the ministry of prophet, king, and priest. Now understand, there are many prophets and many kings and many priests that have come and have been among God's people. We could, we could list them. We could look through the Bible and just count them up. But none of them has ever fulfilled these three ministries perfectly. That's only Jesus. All others have failed. And that failure is why God's people here in Isaiah 10 are being threatened with extinction. They're not to put their hope in the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They're to put their hope in God. Because the others will fail, but only the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly fulfills these ministries. So we see here a description of this Prince of Peace, 1 and 2. Now in 3 through 5, we see a description of his rule. He is righteous and faithful. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. You ever been in that position where someone's, someone is judging you, and maybe it's their place to do that, they're, they're your boss or something, but you wish that they could just see what was really happening inside, why I really did that. Well, that's the way it is with Jesus. He doesn't just see what's happening on the outside. He will penetrate the outside into the innermost being, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows. Even when we fail, he knows what's inside. His judgment is righteous. It is perfect. And it says then his righteousness is a belt of his waist. The idea there is that it holds all of it together. Righteousness holds together all that his, his character is, all that he does, if you will. For if he were not righteous, would you want him to be your judge in the end? That'd be a scary thought, wouldn't it? If at the end of your life you know you have to stand before a judge, but you're not sure he's righteous and he's going to decide what happens to you for eternity... That's why we need a righteous judge, because he'll look and he'll see what's really there. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. But he's not just a righteous judge, he's also a faithful one. Look at the next part of verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. He will judge faithfully. He will do it. He will not let any sin Go unpunished. It will all be taken care of, and the wicked will be dealt with according to his justice. It's faithful. 
It is certain, and this faithfulness is the belt of his loins. Righteousness and faithfulness are the way he rules. They're what hold that rule together, if you will. So consider, our circumstances seem to be stacked against you today, maybe in your family or at work, in your neighborhood. Or is the enemy perhaps threatening to overtake you in some secret part of your life that no one else knows about? You are struggling every day, and it seems like the enemy is going to win and annihilate you. There's hope for peace because the Prince of Peace wears a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. Listen, your confidence in Jesus Christ is not misplaced because your Prince of Peace will do you justice. And his justice will be according to his righteousness. So be encouraged. We should be encouraged that Jesus rules. Every time we want to start putting our little puny agenda into place, we just stop and go, wait, wait, no. That's a bad idea. Jesus needs to rule because only he can rule righteously and faithfully. So we've seen this shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse that is his prince of peace. We've seen what he's like and we've seen how he rules. And what does he rule? He rules a kingdom of peace. And verses 6 through 9 describe this kingdom of peace with its harmonious and tranquil. Harmony has, um, it has at the beginning of it the idea of getting along. But it's not just getting along. Uh, some of you were at the choir practice the other day. And um, think about when you're singing. And one person singing the melody and another person singing the harmony. And the idea is that the two voices together will make a really nice sound. The harmony is not just about, oh, I'll, I'll get along with this person. I don't have to like them. Harmony is about, I'm going to do my best so that we sound good together. In this kingdom of peace, Every one of God's people are going to live in such a way that they're thinking, I'm going to do my best for Jesus so that all of us sound good, do good, that all of us live righteously. That's what this, that's what this idea of harmony is. Now, the tranquility is the idea of a, of a calmness um, where there's not chaos. It's not like your house at Thanksgiving when all the family come in, right? And it's chaos. And the things are thrown all over. And kids are getting all the toys out. And it's just chaos. Tranquility is a calmness. Not, not, in, not, a, not a doing nothing. But in the doing, it's calm. There's not chaos. There's not strife. People aren't yelling at one another. People aren't getting angry with one another. And, and here's, how, here's how Isaiah describes it. It's really interesting how he describes it. He describes it using some pairs of contrasts. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And we know that that's not possible. Many years ago, we had, uh, we had some goats. Our neighbor up the road had some dogs. The dogs got out. They got into the pen with the goats. They were not there 
to lie down peacefully with the goats and eat some of their grain. And my wife had to run out of our house and chase those dogs out of there. They had come with malicious intent because they're predators and they're carnivores. And look what's going to happen, though. The predator and the carnivore, naturally at enmity with one another, uh, the, the, the I mean, the predator carnivore and the herbivore are natural at enmity with one another, are going to lie down together, dwell together. And you could even send little Izzy, my little boy Izzy, in there among them to tell him what to do. He's not going to get attacked. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's fanciful to think about. We could draw pictures of it. But it's hard to think in real life that this could happen. Now remember, Isaiah is not just talking about animals. He's giving us a concept, an idea of how this is going to be. Can you imagine, those of us that are married, that a day is going to come when you are not going to fight anymore with your spouse? Not going to be angry with them. Not going to be angry with anybody. Not just married people, anyone. You're not going to have strife with one another. You're just going to be at peace. And it's, not, and it's not just like within America. The other nations, Russian Christians, Ukrainian Christians, are going to sit down together. Now, I'm not saying that they're at enmity with one another right now, but their nations are. But those nations aren't going to be anymore. It's all going to be together, and they're going to they're lie down. And then look at this other thing that's going to happen. The cow and the bear are going to graze, and the lion is going to eat straw like the ox. <laughs> that's going to be weird. Just imagine. There's the lion, and there's an ox, and he's like, whoo, steak. That thought's not even going to go through his mind. Like, look at that straw. I'm going to have some of that. Imagine. And then this one hits a little closer to home for some of us. The nursing child is going to play over the hole of a deadly snake. And the weaned child, the young child, is going to put his hand in the den of a deadly snake. And that snake is not going to hurt him or her. See what's happened? What's happened is, because of this Prince of Peace that has come, because of the righteousness and faithfulness that are the belt of his waist and of his loins, he does away with the curse. These are cursed things. The wolf and the eating the lamb. Those are cursed things. The snake hurting the child. Those are not things that were originally in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. But the curse has been done away with in this kingdom of peace. Not, not just a temporary truce. It's not the lion going, hey, listen, I'm not going to hurt you. Just let me lay down with you for a while, and then I'll leave. It's real peace, true peace. Those that are, were once at enmity are now in harmony with one another. Those who once were causing chaos are tranquil. The entire creation, which was made subject to sin, corruption, and hatred, has been renewed so that there will never again be hatred, opposition, and devouring, but only peace and tranquility. 
And why will all this be? Well, look at verse 9. Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Imagine standing out on the coast of New Hampshire and looking out across the ocean as far as you can see, and all you see is water. That's the picture that we're getting here. You look out across all of the people and all of the nations, and all you see is peace, harmony, and tranquility. Because the people know God. Because the people know Jesus. Think about it already in the Bible time. Much is made of by the Bible writers about the fact that the Jew and the Gentile worship together. That was, the, that was already the beginning of this kingdom of peace. It was demonstrated right off the bat. When these people would come together. It was demonstrated in the church when the rich and the poor would come together for a meal. And the rich would offer to the poor of their, of their food. And would provide for them. People would sell their property and give it so that there wouldn't be needy people in the church. Males and females began to be treated within the church with equity. And think about this. Master and slave uh, as it says in the, uh, in the carol, our brother. Remember Paul's letter to Philemon? Philemon, I got your slave here. I'm sending him back. And you know what? You should treat him like you do me. And I'm sure when Paul went to visit Philemon, Philemon didn't say, hey, Paul, go get me that, go get me that, go do that. He treated him as a brother. Take him back as a brother. This changes everything. We already are living in the beginning of this kingdom of peace. It's not yet fully consummated. When it is, everything will be renewed. So, Brian, don't send your kids out to play with the poisonous snakes yet. (laughs) It's not happening yet. But just because you can't do that doesn't mean that the reality of the kingdom of peace doesn't already exist. We are proof of that right here. I'm sure most of us, without Christ, would not be nearly as glad to come together Sunday morning. Just have other things we'd want to do, other people we'd want to be with. Why would I want to be with that person? They're just hard to be with. But we already see the beginning of it right here. Now, how is this going to be? Well, Jehovah, verse 10, is going to gather all his people under a banner. Look at this in verse 10. In that day, in that final consummation, but it's already started now, in the day of the Prince of Peace, uh, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations acquire, and get this, his resting place shall be glorious. How is this going to happen? It's Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who has by his blood ransomed people from every tribe and nation. He is our banner or our flag or our signal. Now, a flag has two purposes. One is to unite and one is to separate. And one of the things, first of all, you've got to understand is when the Bible is talking about a banner, it's not thinking of our American flag. Or any nation flag, for that matter, not just American. 
It's more like the flags of battalions during a battle. You read back on your history, for example, in the Civil War, or the Revolutionary War. You know, one of the most important people in the army was the standard bearer, the guy that held the flag that said, this is the group of people that fight in this unit. Remember that uh, they didn't have intercoms. They couldn't talk to one another through intercoms. You couldn't hear your commander yelling to you from a quarter mile away or from 100 yards away. Cannons are blowing and guns are shooting and people are screaming and yelling. You got lost. You don't know where your unit is. You've got to find out where you're supposed to be with your people. And you look and you see there's the flag. There's my banner. That's the group I'm with. Get myself over there so we regroup and do what we're supposed to do. That's the idea of the banner here. It unites. It draws together those who are alike. It shows who should gather together and where they should gather. And we, God's people, gather under his signal, his flag, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's in location like today. But it's always, always in spirit. We don't cease to be God's people when we leave the building. We're still his. We're still his church. But the flag also separates. The reason it separates is because it demands faithfulness from those who would own the flag. And in doing that, it shuts out those who wouldn't own the flag. So here we could use the example of a nation flag, if I say I am a part of this nation, that's my flag, I own that, then if I'm part of that nation, I cannot be a part of another nation in the same way. I'm separated from that. And so the flag, the Lord Jesus Christ, separates us. We have a proclamation. If you can distill down, and Scripture distills down all of our theology and doctrine and confessions and creeds to a three-word statement, what would it be, Brian? I caught him off guard. <laughs> Anybody know? What would it be? What was the statement the early Christians made so the empire would know who their allegiance to? Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. That proclamation says, I own this banner. I am part of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It's what our baptism says. Our baptism shows, demonstrates publicly, I am part of Jesus. It's what our obedience to God's commands demonstrate. When I say, I'm going to do this because this is what the Bible says to do, I'm saying, Jesus is Lord. Christ is King. And when I love one another, because love is the greatest command. When I love others, I'm saying I'm of Jesus. And you know what? If I do that, if I say Jesus is Lord, I get baptized, I obey God's commands, I love others, I am going to be separated out from all the other banners. Because they don't have that. That's not how they live. And so I own Jesus Jesus owns me. And this is going to become even more evident at the final resurrection. 
Because Matthew records for us that then the king is going to say to those who are his, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you want to hear that? I really do. That's what I want to hear. Come, come in. Come in. We've been waiting for you. We've got everything ready for you. You're a friend of God. You're a child of God. You belong to him. But to those who refuse him, to those who will not get under that banner, but choose a different one, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there's a word of warning here. If you refuse to own the banner, the signal of God, this Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the, on the basis of Scripture, I'm telling you, you will never, never enter the glorious resting place. The kingdom of peace will never be yours. You will join all the other wicked people and the devil and in demons even in eternal punishment. But there's hope. There's hope. While there is still day, while you still breathe, call upon the name of the Lord, the banner, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and you will be saved. These truths about the Prince of Peace and his kingdom of peace being preached during the Advent season are meant to do something. My hope is what they will do for us is stir up longing and encouragement. Longing and encouragement. For one thing, we are created to live in the kind of kingdom that Isaiah describes here in chapter 11. That was the intention, right? God made a garden, put two people in it. He intended them to live this kind of life, harmonious, tranquil, righteousness and faithfulness abounding, obeying God. what's intended, but we're not there yet. It's the beginning. We're not there yet. We're, we're like what the scripture describes when it talks about the bride. So the bride would be entrothed or betrothed to the bridegroom. There, there was a promise or agreements and vows, going to marry you. But, and that was done publicly, but then the bride would go back to her house and wait for the bridegroom to get everything ready to come and get her and bring her and consummate the marriage. And so we have this, this betrothal. We have been promised a wedding. And now we're waiting. We are waiting for our bridegroom to return in that second advent and consummate this marriage and make it full in everything that it's supposed to be. And if you are feeling content in your life today and have no real longings for the eternal, I would recommend putting that to prayer. Because the scripture doesn't settle for that. It doesn't settle for, we just live a pretty good life now, contented, comfortable life now, and then I'll go to heaven when that comes. We talked about it last week. Right? Paul says, put on armor. 
got to fight this thing. One of the things we have to fight is just sort of settling in here and waiting for it all to get over. As opposed to longing, longing, desiring, praying for Jesus. Come quickly. Not just so that we can get out of here. Not just so that um, we can enjoy this kingdom of peace. We do it for the same reason that David took a slingshot and five stones and went out against a giant because the glory of God is at stake. We want God to be glorified. And the fullness of the glory of God will not be evident until Jesus returns. And so one of the reasons we ought to be praying, Jesus, come, is we desire and long for and want the fullness of the glory of God to cover the earth like the waters. And what better time to do that than Advent? It's just built in. This awaiting, hopeful awaiting. Maybe you are longing. Maybe you've been longing for a long time and it's it's becoming overwhelming. Or maybe somebody you know becoming overwhelming. Lord, you've given me 90 years. Can I be done now? <laughs> Can you come back? God, you just see all of this wrecked humanity around me and in me. Could you just come back? Maybe you have been longing, but that longing is, is threatening to overwhelm you. This text is meant to encourage because no matter how dark it seems, in our world, there is hope as held out for us here. There's an eternal kingdom that is waiting us, and our Prince of Peace is righteous and faithful. He's not going to put this off. He's not going to put this off. He will surely bring us safely to his kingdom. In a little while, his anger will be directed to, destruct, to the destruction of his enemies. Those who have taken an axe to the tree of God will themselves be hewn down. And he says this, if you go back to verses 33 and 34 of Isaiah 10. Behold, look closely and carefully at this. Behold, the Lord God of hosts is identifying him as the one who controls everything and especially the angel armies. He will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickest of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon, which was known for its trees, will fall by the majestic one. That's our hope. That's our promise. That's our confidence. He's done it already once. He's going to do it finally for us at his second advent. And never, never will another grapevine come popping out. Never will another shoot come out from the wicked stump that he cuts down because the shoot from the stump of Jesse has come and will bear fruit. Father, thank you for this Prince of Peace.
We wrestle with this already, not yet. We understand the reality that Jesus has already done this, this work. And yet there is one more thing we're waiting for, for Jesus to return. Oh, Father, would you send him soon to gather in all that belong to him and completely, forever, entirely undo the curse. Our bodies cry out for that. The bodies of our loved ones who are dead cry out for that. The bodies of millions of your people over the centuries cry out for that. Do away with the curse. Take us into that everlasting kingdom that is described here as glorious. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mike Nye of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.